Welcome to the show, everybody. This is your boy, Lil Jackson, coming to you live on a rainy day on the Only You podcast here in the great country of the United States of America. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> hey, this is a podcast that we like to talk about self-help. We like to talk about books that are going to empower, help people get over their shortcomings, maybe a death, maybe they had some kind of horrible week at work, maybe they had an accident, maybe they're injured and can't get out of a hospital bed. This podcast is built to have an outlet so you can turn somewhere and listen to somebody that cares about you, that loves you, and honestly, if you were to reach out to me, I would reach out to you because I'm here, I care, and not everybody does. Some people are there to offer you a hand up in life and uh, hurry up and jerk that hand away and kick you while you're down. Those are also people that are out there. Well, today, you guys, I want to do a book that I ran across um, called Animal Farm by George Orwell, which in reality, George Orwell's real name is Eric Arthur Blair. He was born on June 25th, 1903, and i he had an unfortunate death on January 21st, 1950. So he really actually lived a pretty short life. Um, his pen name, obviously, is George Orwell. Was an English novelist, essayist, journalist, and critic. His work is characterized by lucid prose, social criticism, opposition to totalitarianism, and support of democratic socialism. Which, here in the U.S., you know, because of people like George um, uh, Orwell, you know, we're experiencing democratic socialism still to this day. Look at Bernie Sanders. He's an open, open socialist. He believes in socialism. It's unfortunate because we are not a socialist country, country and nor will we ever be, ever. I will repeat that. We will never, ever be a socialist country ever here. It's never going to happen. It's just written in the laws and the ways. Orwell produced uh, liter uh, literary criticism and poetry fiction. Um, he is known f uh, for the allegorical uh, novel Animal Farm, which that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, he's written uh, 1984, which everybody should know that book and should have read that in high school, which is one of the greatest books ever because it was the first book that we realized what was coming in the future. And honestly, everything in 1984 is now. It's happening. We've already discovered all those things he talked about in that book that were fiction to him at that point. But in reality, you guys, was it fiction? Or did he actually have some insight and know someone that evolved his brain enough to help him see that there was a future in all those things that he was writing about back then? Um, Orwell was born in India. Or we'll call him Blair, because his real name is Eric Blair. Eric Blair was born in India and raised and educated in England. I find this true, too. When I read stuff about people whose parents um, take them as kids and kind of move them around. And, you know, you hear all these um, stories of like, oh, I'm a military brat. We moved all over the place. But in reality, some of those people are truly some of the most intelligent most um, inspirational people I've ever met. I met, uh, excuse me, I met, I read about 
a man and a woman who were both school teachers. They decided to um, give up teaching, take their savings. They bought four bicycles, took their kids all the way to Alaska, and pedaled all the way to South America. It took them 11 years to get from Alaska all the way to the tip of South America. By the time they were done training and teaching their their two boys along the way, because that's what they did. They devoted all their um, expertise um, in teaching and instilling everything they knew into their kids. Both of their kids became rocket scientists. I, I, I find that awesome, I, you know, because it's true. I, I mean... Just like this guy here, you know, uh, Eric, Eric Blair, you know, he he was moved around when he was a kid, and, and obviously he was born in India, then was went to school in England. That tells you something right there. When somebody makes those kind of moves with their kid, their kid's going to be intelligent no matter what because they're being introduced to different prodigiums, they're being introduced to different cultures, to different society aspects from a different point of view of people because i mean you go from Indi- go to india and then travel to england there's a huge huge difference there in the people and culture um he lived from occasional pieces of journalism and also worked as a teacher or bookseller with living in L- london from the late 1920s to the early 1930s his success as a writer grew and his books were published he was wounded fighting in the civil oh excuse me he was wounded fighting in the Spanish Civil War leading to his first period of ill health on return to England during the Second World War he worked as a journalist and for the BBC which everybody should know the BBC um uh, the British Broadcasting Corporation <laughs> I the pub, the publication of Animal House or excuse me Animal House wow yeah Let's uh, back that up. Hello. <laughs> that was a good movie, though, Animal House. I'll take it. The publication of Animal Farm led to fame during his lifetime. During the final years of his life, he worked on 1984 and moved between Jorah and Scotland and London. It published in June 1949, less than a year before his death. Orwell's work remains influential in popular culture and political culture, and the objective Orwellian, describing totalitarian and authoritarian social practices as part of the English language, like many of the uh, other people at that time, uh, such as Big Brother, Thought Police, Room 101, Newspeak, Memory Hole, Double Think, and thought crime. In 2008, the Times ranked George Orwell second among the great, oh, excuse me, uh, second among the 50 greatest British writers since 1945. I think that's pretty impressive. I had to have a good drink of coffee there. Thank you guys for tuning in to the Only You podcast. This is your boy, Lo Jackson. And today we are going over a wonderful book written by uh, uh, George Orwell, and it's called Animal Farm. And George Orwell's real name is Eric Arthur Blair. His grandfather was Charles Blair, was a wealthy country gentleman and absentee owner of Jamaican plantations. Wow, that's pretty wild. 
from Dorset, who married Lady Mary Fane, daughter of the 8th Earl of Westmoreland. His grandfather, Thomas Richard Arthur Blair, was an Anglican clergyman, and Orwell's father was Richard Blair, who worked as a sub-duty opium agent in the opium department of the Indian Civil Service. Wow, you guys. Overseeing the production and storage of opium for sale in China. I find that wild. So crazy. Eric had two sisters, Marjorie, five years older, and um, Avril was five years younger. When Eric was one years old, his mother took him and Marjorie to England. In 2014, restoration work began on Orwell's birthplace, an ancestral house in British India. That's freaking awesome, you guys. That I, I'm excited to dive into this. This is Animal Farm. George Elwar, born Eric Arthur Blair, was a much-respected English novelist, political author, and journalist who wrote some of the finest pieces in literary criticism, poetry, fiction, and journalism. Born on June 25, 1903, in India, to a civil servant who worked in the then-legal opium trade, Orwell moved to London with his mother at the age of one. He started his schooling at St. Superior's, which is referred to as a lukewarm bath of snobbery, which probably propelled him into going on to becoming someone wonderful. When you were brought up somewhat poor, like I was brought up with um, uh, kind of like a wealthy family, but a poor family. So I have the best of both worlds on treat how to treat people who are less fortunate than me, but also how to re have respect for someone who is in authority and, um, you know, of a higher stature than I am. Where was I, you guys? Oh, about the snobbery. <laughs> and later won a scholarship to Eton. But didn't perform well there, perhaps by choice. Having no other option left, he signed up for the Indian Imperial Police and left for Burma, modern-day Manamar, in 1922. Having grown to hate imperialism and keen to start a fresh career with writing, Orwell returned home in 1927 and moved to Paris. During these years, in Paris, he wrote numerous short stories and articles, but didn't achieve much success. He came back to London after he fell seriously ill, and we talked about that earlier. And it was here that he wrote under the pseudonym George Orwell for the first time. His first work under his pen name was Down and Out in Paris and London. A memoir about tra his travel log theme on, a, on poverty in the two capital cities. Considered perhaps the 20th century's best chronicler of English culture, Orwell's work is known for its simplicity, and, uh, astuteness, and wit. His writing is mainly within the genres of uh, dystopia and satire. He wrote with great cleverness on subjects such as anti-fascism, democratic socialism, totalitarianism, and anti-Stalinism. He used his fiction writing as well as his journalism to defend his political Convictions. Orwell's work continues to feed popular and political culture. Many of the words coined by him, such as doublethink, thought crime, big brother, and thought police, have found a place in popular jargon. His, and we all know that, and they're still being used to this day. 
His best works include Animal Farm, 1984, I love that book, and Homage to Catalonia, which is inspired by his stint in the Spanish Civil War. Animal Farm, an allegorical novella, was rejected by three British publishers and nearly 20 American publishers before it got published in August 1945. George Orwell died at the age of 46 in 1950. Chapter 1. Mr. Jones of the Manor Farm had locked the hen houses for the night, but was too drunk to remember to shut the potholes. With the ring of light from his lantern dancing from side to side, he lurched across the yard, kicked off his boots at the back door, drew himself a last glass of beer from the barrel in the scullery, and made his way up to bed, where Miss Jones was already snoring. As soon as the light in the bedroom went out there, was a stirring and a fluttering all through the farm buildings. Word had gone around during the day that old Major, the prize middle white boar, had had a strange dream on the previous night and wished to communicate it to the other animals. It had been agreed that they should all meet in the big barn as soon as Mr. Jones was safely out of the way. Old Major, so he was always called through the name under which he had been exhibited, was Willing Don Beauty. <laughs> was so highly regarded on the farm that everyone was quite ready to lose an hour's sleep in order to hear what he had to say. At one of the one end of the big barn, on a sort of raised platform, Major was already ensconed on his bed of straw under a lantern which hung from a beam. He was twelve years old and had lately grown rather stout, but he was still a majestic-looking pig. With a wise and benevolent appearance, in spite of the fact that his tushes had never been cut, before long the other animals began to arrive and make themselves comfortable after their different fashions. First came the three dogs, Bluebell, Jesse, and Pincher, and then the pigs, who settled down in the straw immediately in front of the platform. The hens perched themselves on the window sills, the pigeons fluttered up to the rafters, and sheep and cows lay down behind the pigs and began to chew the cud. The two cart horses, Boxer and Clover, came in together, walking very slowly and setting down their vast hairy hooves with great care, lest there should be some small animal concealed in the straw. Clover was a stout motherly mare approaching middle life, who had never quite got her figure back after her fourth full. Boxer was an enormous beast, nearly 80 hands high, and as strong as two ordinary horses put together. A white stripe down his nose gave him a somewhat stupid appearance. And in fact, he was not the first-rate intelligence, but he was universally respected for his steadiness of character and tremendous powers of work. After the horses came, Mural, the white goat, and Benjamin, the donkey. Benjamin was the oldest animal on the farm and the worst tempered. He seldom talked, and when he did, it was usually to make some cynical remark. For instance, he would say that God had given him a tail to keep the flies off, but that he would sooner have no tail and no flies. Al alone, 
among the animals on the farm, he never laughed. If asked why, he would say that he saw nothing to laugh at. Nevertheless, without openly admitting it, he was devoted to Boxer. The two of them usually spent their Sundays together in the small paddock beyond the orchards, grazing side by side and never speaking. The two horses had just lain down when a broad of ducklings, which had lost their mother, filed into the barn cheeping feebly and wandering from side to side to find some place where they would not be trodened on. <laughs> Clover made a sort of wall around them and her great foreleg, and the ducklings nested down inside it and promptly fell asleep. At the last moment, Molly, the foolish, pretty white mare who drew Mr. Jones's trap, came mincing daintily in, chewing at a large, oh, excuse me, chewing at a lump of sugar. She took a place near the front and began flirting her white mane, hoping to draw attention to the red ribbons it was plated with. Last of all came the cat, who looked around as usual for the warmest place and finally squeezed herself in between Boxer and Clover. There she purred contently throughout Major's speech without listening to a word of what he was saying. I want to say thank you guys for listening to the Only You podcast. This is your boy, Lo Jackson, and I'm coming to you live. Thank you guys for listening to me, and thank you for following me. I am grateful. I'm grateful for everybody that does tune in to this podcast. And today we're doing Animal Farm by George Orwell, or Eric Blair is his real name. All the animals were now present except Moses, the tame raven, who slept on a porch behind the back door. When Major saw that they had all made themselves comfortable and were waiting attentively, he cleared his throat and began. Comrades, you have heard already about the strange dream that I had last night, but I will come to the dream later. I have something else to say. First, I do not think, comrades, that I shall be with you for many months longer. And before I die, I feel it my duty to pass on to you such wisdom as I have acquired. I have had a long life. I have had much time for thought as I lay alone in my stall, and I think I may say that I understand the nature of life on this earth as well as many animal now living. It is about this that I wish to speak to you. Now, comrades, what is the nature of this life of ours? Let us face it. Our lives are miserable, laborious, and short. We are born, we are given just so much food as we will keep the breath in our bodies. And those of us who are capable of it are forced to work to the last atom of our strength. And the very instant that our usefulness has come to an end, we are slaughtered with hideous cruelty. No animal in England knows the meaning of happiness or leisure after he is a year old. No animal in England is free. The life of an animal is misery and slavery. That is the pain and plainful truth. But is this simply part of the order of nature? Is it just because land of ours is so poor that it cannot afford to do a decent life to those who dwell upon it? No, comrades. A thousand times no. The soil of England is fertile. Its climate is good. It is capable of affording food and abundance to an enormously greater number of animals than now inhabited 
this single farm of ours would support a dozen horses, 20 cows, hundreds of sheep, and all of them living in a comfort and a, and a dignity that are now almost beyond our imagination. Why then do we continue in this miserable condition? Before, excuse me, because nearly the whole of the produce of our labor is stolen from us by human beings. Their comrades is the answer to all our problems. It is summed up in a single word, man. Man is the only real enemy we have. Remove man from the scene and the root cause of the hunger and overwork is abolished forever. Man is the only creature that consumes without producing. He does not give milk, he does not lay eggs. He is too weak to pull the plow. He cannot run fast enough to catch rabbits. Yet he is lord of all the animals. He sets them to work, he gives them Excuse me. He gives back to them the bare minimum that will prevent them from starving, and the rest he keeps for himself. Our labor tills in the soil, our dung fertiles it, and yet there is not one of us that owns more than his own bare skin. You cows that I see before me, how many thousands of gallons of milk have you given during this last year? And what has happened to that milk which should have been breeding up sturdy calves every drop of it has gone down the throats of our enemies and you hens how many eggs have you laid in this past year and how many of those eggs ever hatched into chickens the rest of you all gone to the market to bring in money for Joneses and his men and you clover where are those four fowls you bore who should have been the support and pleasure of your old age each was sold at a year old you will never see one of them again in return for your four confinements and all your labor in the fields what have you ever had except your bare rations and a stall and even the miserable lives we lead are not allowed to reach their natural span for myself I do not grumble for I am one of the lucky ones I am 12 years old and have had over 400 children such in the nature, or excuse me, such is the natural life of a pig, but no animal escapes the cruel knife in the end. You young porkers who are sitting in front of me, every one of you will scream your lives out at the block within a year. To that horror, we all must come. Cows, pigs, hens, sheep, everyone. Even the horses and the dogs have no better fate. You boxer, the very day that those great muscles of yours lose their power, Jones will sell you to the cracker, who will cut your throat and boil you down for the foxhounds. As for the dogs, when they grow old and toothless, Jones ties a brick around your necks and drowns them in the nearest pond. Is it not crystal clear, then, comrades, that all the evils of this life are spring from the tyranny of human beings? Only get rid of man, and the produce of our labors would be our own almost overnight we could become rich and free what then must we do why work night and day body and soul for the overthrow of the human race that is my message to you comrades rebellion I do not know when that rebellion will come it might be in a week or in 100 years but I know, as surely as I see this straw beneath my feet, that sooner or later, justice will be done. 
Fix your eyes on that, comrades, throughout the short remainder of your lives. And above all, pass on this message of mine to those who come after you so that future generations shall carry on the struggle until it is victorious. And remember, comrades, your resolution must never falter. No argument must lead you astray. No argument must lead you astray. Never listen when they tell you that man and the animals have a common interest, that the prosperity of the one is the prosperity of the others. It is all lies. Man serves the interest of no creature except himself. And among us animals, let there be perfect unity, perfect camaraderie, and the, in the struggle. All men are enemies. All animals are comrades. At this moment, there was tremendous, a tremendous uproar while Major was speaking. Four large rats had crept out of their holes and were sitting on their hindquarters listening to him. The dogs had suddenly caught sight of them and it was only by a swift dash for their holes that the rats saved their lives. Major raised his trotter for silence. Comrades, he said, here is a point that must be settled. The wild creatures such as rats and rabbits, are they our friends or our enemies? Let us put it to the vote. I propose the question to the meeting, are rats comrades? The vote was taken at once and it was agreed by an overwhelming majority that rats were comrades. There were only four dissentiments and three dogs and cat and the cat who was afterwards discovered to have voted on both sides. Major continued, I have little more to say, merely repeat. Remember always remember always your duty of anonymity towards man and all his ways. Wherever goes upon two legs excuse me, whatever goes upon two legs is an enemy. Whatever goes upon four legs or has wings is a friend. And remember also that in fighting against man, we must not come to resemble him. Even when you have conquered him, do not adopt his vices. No animal must ever live in a house or sleep in a bed or wear clothes or drink alcohol or smoke tobacco or, or touch money or engage in trade. All the habits of man are evil, and above all, no animal must ever tyrannize over his own kind, weak or strong, clever or simple. We are all brothers. No animal must ever kill any other animal. Animals are equal. And now, comrades, I will tell you about my dream of last night. I cannot describe the dream to you. It was a dream of the earth as it will be when man has vanished. But it reminded me of something that I had long forgotten many years ago when I was a little pig. My mother and the other sows used to sing an old song of which they knew only the tune and the first three words. I had known that tune in my infancy, but it had long since passed out of my mind. Last night, however, it came back to me in my dream. And what is more? The words of the song also came back, words, I am certain, were sung by the animals of long ago and have been lost to memory for generations. I will sing you that song now, comrades. I am old and my voice is hoarse, but when I have taught you the tune, you can sing it better for yourselves. It is called 
beast of England. Old Major cleared his throat and began to sing. As he said, as he had said, his voice was hoarse, but he sang well enough, and it was a stirring tune, something between Clementine and La Cucaracha. The words ran, Beast of England, Beast of Ireland, Beast of every land and clime, hearken to my joyful tidings of the golden future time. Sooner or late the day is coming, tyrant man shall be overthrown, and the fruitful fields of England shall be trod by beast alone. Rings shall vanish from our noses, and the harness from our back, bit and spur shall rust forever. Cruel whips no more shall crack, riches more than mine can picture. Wheat and barley, oats and hay, clover beans and mangle wurzels shall be ours upon the day. Bright will shine the fields of England, pure shall its waters be. Sweeter yet shall blow its breezes on the day that sets us free. For that day we all must labor, though we die before it break. Cows and horses, geese and turkeys, all must toil for freedom's sake. Beasts of England, beasts of Ireland, beasts of every land and clime, hearken well and spread my tidings of the golden future time. The singing of this song threw the animals into the wildest excitement. Almost before Major had reached the end, they had begun singing it for themselves. Even the stupidest of them already picked up the tune and a few of the words. And as for the clever ones, such as the pigs and dogs, they had the entire song by heart within a few minutes. And then, after a few preliminary tries, the whole farm burst out into beasts of England in tremendous unison. The cows load it, the dogs wind it, the sheep belted it, and the horses weenied it, the ducks quacked it. They were so delighted with the song that they sang it right through five times in session and might have continued singing it all night if they had not been interrupted. Unfortunately, the uproar awoke Mr. Jones, who sprang out of bed, making sure that there was a fox in the, making sure there was a fox in the yard. He seized the gun, which always stood in the corner of his bedroom, and let fly a charge of number six shot into the darkness. The pellets buried themselves in the wall of the barn and met, and the meeting broke up hurriedly. Everyone fled to his own sleeping place. The birds jumped on to their perches, and the animals settled down in the straw, and the whole farm was asleep in a moment. Thank you, guys, and today I am doing uh, uh, George Orwell's farmhouse. I, wa I wanted to share this with you guys today because I wanted to also include some coping skills that you can use at work because I feel like this book related to all the disagreements that happen in the workplace all over the country and this was um, published from Harvard Health um, Publishing's Harvard Medical School and it's how to handle stress at work and, um, and it's like how does your body react to work stress you know think about all those animals you know that's what made uh, George Orwell's um, farmhouse such a great read is that he used the allegory of animals to assimilate people and 
it's still relevant to this day because we all go and all know people in the workplace who act similar to the cows, horses, and dogs in this book. Um, and how does stress, uh, yeah, how does your body react to work stress? Imagine for a moment that your boss has emailed you about an unfinished assignment, um, a stressor. Your body and mind instantly respond, activating a physical reaction called the fight or flight response, which is, you know, you release cortisol, your heart beats faster, your breath quickens, which that's uh, epinephrine, causes your heart to increase and you to breathe faster. At the same time, and those are all hormones your brain releases when we learn new information. At the same time, you might say to yourself, I'm going to get fired if I don't finish this then to manage your anxiety and negative self-talk you work late into the night to complete the task over the course of our evolutionary history humans developed this coordinated fear response to protect against dangers in our environment for example a faster heart rate and tense muscles would help us escape from predators in the modern era fear continues to serve as an important function after all the fight-or-flight response can provide the necessary energies to pull an all-nighter and keep your job but what happens if you encounter stressful experiences at work every day over time chronic work stresses can lead to psychological syndrome known as burnout and we have all suffered from burnout who has been in the workforce for more than 10 years warning signs of burnout are overwhelming exhaustion cynicism and a sense of inefficiency um, certain work-related stressors are closely linked with burnout um, examples are having too much work or too little independence, inadequate pay, lack of community um, between coworkers, unfairness or disrespect, any mismatch between workplace and personal values. Um, and how can work stress affect your well-being? Long-term exposure to work-related stressors like these can affect mental health. Um, research links burnout with symptoms of anxiety, depression. In some cases, this sets the stage for serious mental health problems. Um, and one study shows younger people who routinely face heavy workloads and extreme time pressures on the job are more likely to experience major depressive disorders um, and generalized anxiety disorders. High levels of stress at work and outside of it can affect physical health too. Uh, repeated activation of the fight or flight response can disrupt bodily systems and increase susceptibility to disease. For example, related release of the stress hormone cortisol, which I told you about earlier, can disturb the immune system and raise the likelihood of developing autoimmune disorders, cardiovascular disease, and Alzheimer's disease. Chronic stress can also affect health by interfering with healthy behaviors such as exercise, balanced eating, and sleep. And all those things um, affect us in those ways. Um, how can you cope with work stress? And in this season of the Only You podcast, I want to try to incorporate coping skills. So somebody out there might be able to learn something that may help them while they're going through um, stressful situations at work or just in life in general. And how can you cope with work stress? Um, all of us can benefit by learning skills to manage fear and anxiety on the job. Several skills taught in cognitive behavioral therapy uh, may help, uh, including these relaxation strategies. Rela um, relaxation helps counter the psychological effects of the fight or flight response. For example, progressive muscle 
uh, relaxation helps reduce muscle tension associated with anxiety and sometimes you know like on your lunch break or your first break just doing breathing exercises while you're out there having your cigarette which i would frown upon having a cigarette but still a lot of people still do in the workplace and you know breathing exercises are important because it helps breathe your breath you know is very important to reduce stress and it's one of the easiest ways to get unstressed is through um um you know practice breathing uh, to practice this skill sit comfortably with your eyes closed working from your legs upwards systematically tense and relax each major muscle group hold the tension for 10 seconds which this is called an isometric hold and that's not in this writing but i want to relay that to you guys hold the tension for 10 seconds release tension for 20 seconds each time you release muscle tension think relax to yourself i think calm i think relax i think de-energize i think reset those those are some words that i use when i do this daily and i've been doing this for 20 years so it definitely works this skill and many other relaxation strategies can help reduce symptoms of anxiety um, problem solving problem solving is an active coping strategy that involves teaching people to take specific steps when approaching a roadblock or challenge these steps include defining the problem brainstorming potential solutions um, ranking the solutions see because if you don't rank the solutions then how do you know that the first one is the best one because I'm telling you only idiots write stuff down you guys because then they never forget anything so get on it write it down figure it out get your plan going because anytime I have plans to do something I make sure I make up at least three to five plans so then if my first one fails I have a backup plan and that goes with anything in my life. I always have a backup plan for everything, even at work and at my job. If my first initial way of doing something doesn't work, I have another plan lined up if that one doesn't work. Before I ever start anything, I have two plans, if not three, sometimes five. Mindfulness. Mindfulness is the ability to pay attention to the present moment with curiosity, openness, and acceptance. Stress can be ex uh, exacerbated when we spend time uh, reminiscing about the past, worrying about the future, or engaging in self-criticism, mindfulness helps to train <clears throat> the brain to break these um, harmful habits. Um, if you guys ever get a chance, rush out and buy the book, um, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. He actually explains how the brain works and breaks it down, how the amygdala in the brain is responsible for fight or flight but in reality the medial lobes in the front very like just above your eyeballs actually is in charge of the mindfulness of the brain and it if if people took a you know like when some guy is roughing you up at the bar and you're out drinking and he's like hey man i'll fight you and that that moment of uh, fight or flight kicks in if you took one or two seconds to step back and be like is this guy kidding or is he serious? You know, when you do that, you allow your medial lobes to dictate whether, oh, this guy's just kidding around. He's not serious. You know, like, but in that book, I believe that he explains that, like, um, if you're in the dark and you see um, a person running up to you in a hoodie, in a dark clothed hoodie, your brain says, is he going to kill me or should I run from him? And in reality, the medial lobe says, hey, wait a minute. 
he's just running by. He's not going to harm you at all. And that's the part of what I'm talking about right now called mindfulness. And in this reading, you can check out mindfulness apps that help you, you know, reduce symptoms of depression, anxiety by using an app. Um, Dr. Caroline Leaf actually has um, a system that she's developed, the 21-day neurocycle. And you guys, she has like 500 podcasts that she's done. Check her out. She's a world-renowned psychiatrist, and she's out there working with all kinds of different um, cognitive behavioral therapies, um, the you know imaging therapies. She's doing all that stuff. So check that out too. And those are just some things to think about. Um, reappraising negative thoughts. Chronic stress and worry can lead people to develop a mental filter in which they automatically interpret situations through a negative lens. A person might jump to negative conclusions with little or no evidence. My boss thinks I'm an incompetent and doubt their ability to cope with stressors. I'll be devastated if I don't get that promotion. To reappraise negative thoughts, treat them as um, hypothesis instead of facts and consider other possibilities. And when we do that, it opens the neuroplasticity in our brain to, to form positively, not negatively. When we coerce the human brain to um, go down the negative thought process of chronic stress, because, I mean, cortisol, it can become overwhelming. Your brain can just get used to releasing cortisol because you're depressed and, you know, it cortisol is released to get you angry you sometimes some some people get angry because they're looking for a dopamine fix anger sparks when somebody starts raging for no reason like oh blah 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 you know yeah they could be hangry but then again it could be a mental disorder of way too much cortisol re, uh, being produced in the human brain and that's something to think about there too you know Not, i mean these are all um great coping uh, mechanisms that we can help each other get through the workforce every single day because we all deal with horrible bosses we all deal with um mismatched um managers and it's like i don't know Every, everybody has run into issues in the workplace where they are so beyond stress that they don't even know if they ever want to come back to work as long as they live for the rest of their lives because it's so um dilapidating sometimes in the workforce and I've gotten to the point now where this quietly quitting thing that's going on in America, I understand it. I mean, all these corporations have really taken advantage of everybody all around the world. All their families are doing wonderful. And look at I mean, just last week they put out a statistic. 66% of Americans right now are struggling as opposed to this past year. So, I mean, whatever is going on in the government and on in it, going on in the United States and in the world, I think, it's affecting everybody right now. So, I mean, the stress levels are high. You know, look for coping skills that are going to draw you out, make you a better person, you know, stop the production of cortisol, look for ways um, to become a better individual all the way around. You guys, thank you for listening. And um, this was George uh, Orwell's rendition of farmhouse and i wanted to include this because it reminded me a lot of the workplace and how you know we always have those group of people that either we love or we hate or whatever you know but for the most part we spend half of our lives at work so why not become great workers why not be 
somebody that somebody goes home and talks about like oh baby you ain't gonna believe this guy he's wonderful you know be that person that somebody goes home and talks about at the dinner table to their kids because you brought joy into somebody's life and they appreciate you and your your candor and your cattiness is cool you know Get out there and do it. Thank you guys for listening to the Only You Podcast, your boy Lo Jackson. This is season two. Thank you for following me. Thank you for sharing me. And thank you for, you know, all your crowdfunding and all that stuff you guys do. You guys are some awesome people. Keep on throwing your comments out there. Hit me up. Anytime you want to leave me an email, I, I it's in my commercial. You can send me an email through Gmail. I'll get back to you. And again, thanks for listening. Till next time. I don't know why I keep on saying Animal House. <laughs> but Animal Farm was the name of the book by Eric Blair or George Orwell and thank you guys again for listening I do appreciate every single one of you and be good to yourselves learn those coping skills you need to be a better individual all the way around every single day thank you so much, Till next time